Frank Ling. And I'm Charles Lee. And you're listening to the Grok Science Show. That's right, it's a weekly look at the world of science, technology, and their effects on our daily lives. Coming up on today's program, Earl Swift will join us to discuss Across the Airless Wild. So stay tuned for all of this. Plus the Grokatron 5000. And our world famous question of the week. Coming right up. Here. On the Grok's Science Show. Science show. Well, the moon landings. The final ones would be nothing without the lunar rover. Joining us today to discuss the fascinating story of the lunar rover is Mr. Earl Swift. Since 2012, he has been a fellow of the Virginia Humanities at the University of Virginia. He is the author of the New York Times bestseller Chesapeake Requiem, which was named to the 10 best of the year lists. He has penned the new book entitled Across the Airless Wilds. Lunar Rover and the Triumph of the Final Moon Landings. Mr. Swift, thank you so much for joining us today on the Grok Science Show. Charles, thank you. This is really a great book you've put together here, Across the Airless Wilds, in which you talk about the story of the uh, Lunar Rover. I'm curious how you became interested in that story. Well, I turned 13 on the day that uh, Apollo 15 touched down on the moon in July of 1971. And, you know, I don't have a clear recollection of the earlier missions. I remember my parents being very excited about Apollo 11, the first moon landing, but uh, that's just, it's kind of a fuzzy series of snapshots in my memory. But the, the last three missions, beginning with Apollo 15, I remember very clearly, partly because I was old enough to really appreciate what was going on, but also because they carried a piece of equipment that set those missions apart. Uh, you know, they, they carried a car. And so I, I got into the subject mostly through those missions, the realization that they far and away surpassed the earlier moon landings in the science that they conducted and the level of exploration that was possible. And I was a bit mystified that they've they've been all but forgotten. I think you'd be hard-pressed to find Americans off the street who would be able to name any of the astronauts who participated in, in those last three missions. It struck me as something that needed to be corrected. And once I started looking into the missions, then, of course, that, that took me to the, the transformative piece of hardware that they carried aboard, and that was the lunar rover. I, I, th- I think that Apollo 11 landing was such an enormous shared experience, uh, the first experience of that kind, and really, and perhaps the last, in which virtually the entire world experienced the same thing at the same time, watching it on live TV. And the missions that followed just uh, dimmed in the shadow cast by that event. And by the time we get to Apollo 15, the, the fourth moon landing, incredibly, these missions had become somewhat commonplace in the public mind. And I think that, you know, the rover did excite a little bit of attention, at least on, on 15, but 16 and 17, which were perhaps even more ambitious, just kind of vanished in, into historical footnote status almost. You put it in the book, it, it almost seemed inevitable that we sent a car to Mars, but it, it really wasn't so. No, it wasn't at all. But it was obviously necessary. I mean, if you look at the, we sent six missions to the moon that actually landed. And if you look at the first three in which the astronauts got around on foot, you know, they're really limited. For, first of all, these astronauts are wearing a suit that weighs far more than they do. 
suited up an astronaut in the first three missions weighed about 370 pounds. The bulk of that weight was in the backpack that they wore that contained the pumps and the tanks that fed them air and cooling water as they moved around the lunar surface. But the suit was pumped up to the stiffness of a, an all-season radial, and it was really hard to move around in to clutch a, a tool to do work on the, on the surface. I mean, you had to fight five pounds of, of pressure in your glove, and you became exhausted doing simple things. And, uh, and so while it looks like a lot of fun to, you know, the, the astronauts bunny hopping and, and loping around in, in their suits and on the old footage, the fact was that it was a lot more work than it was, <laughs> and, you know, fun. Uh, it was, it was hard labor and that labor uh, jacked up their metabolic rates, which increased their consumption of air and cooling water. And that in turn limited how long they could stay outside the lunar module. So when the astronauts were on foot, not only you know, could they not physically walk very far just because it was difficult to move around, but their supplies ran out before they could get far. That was something that NASA recognized it needed to address, and, and the rover solved all of those problems. How hard was it to come up with, with a rover that could meet those demands? It, it was extremely difficult. I mean, rovers had been talked about and studied under NASA contracts for close to a decade before the agency finally let a contract to, to Boeing and GM to build it. By the time NASA did that, it was half of what it normally took for a, a piece of Apollo hardware to, to get developed. We're talking 17 months design, test, and build for initially four rovers. So it was a, a frantic breakneck effort, but it was informed by that decade of work that had gone into earlier iterations of the rover idea. None of those earlier iterations lent much to the finished rover, but they all lent pieces. So for instance, the wire mesh wheels that are part of the, the signature feature of the rover that went up with Apollo, those were developed back in the early 60s by General Motors for a much bigger pressurized rover that the that NASA foresaw for the post-Apollo period at the time. The motors and you know the whole electrical power plant for the rover derived from earlier studies. But even so, it's one thing to, uh, to study something on paper and another thing entirely to build it against a deadline. And on government contract, that usually doesn't get done too quick. <laughs> yes, indeed. Yeah, it, uh, it wound up meeting its deadlines, blowing its budget, but changing, you know, completely transforming the nature of what could be accomplished in three days on the moon. So I think in most people's estimation, the blown budget has been been forgiven. I mean, tale of the engineering in itself. You know, this this thing origamied into a tiny little storage bay on, on the lunar module, but it descended to the lunar surface intact. It was designed to fold two times over and it made a bundle about the size and shape of a pup tent standing on its end when it was completely folded up. And there was a deployment gear on the lunar module that lowered it like a drawbridge and then unfold, it unfolded as it lowered. And uh, by the time it hit the, the regolith, it was, it was ready to ride. To give you an example, just in, in terms of range, let's talk about that for a second. Uh, Apollo 11, uh, Neil Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin, their wanderings on the lunar surface covered about this, well, less, significantly less, actually, than the area of a, a football field farthest either of them ventured from the BLM was about 65 yards. Apollo 12 hiked a little less than a mile and a half in total, 
never got beyond really the perimeter of the base camp, despite all that wandering. Apollo 14 covered a, a good two miles and uh, even so never ventured more than a half mile from Flander. So when 15 came along and covered 17 miles of the lunar surface and not only covered that distance, but enabled the astronauts to explore very different types of topography within the area they landed. For instance, on two of their drives, they climbed up the side of a mountain the size of Everest, climbed several hundred feet up its side to sample sample rock and uh, geological formations on the slope. They sampled at the edge of a, uh, a canyon that was nearly a mile wide and a thousand feet deep. You know, the rover allowed them to, to set down in the middle of a really interesting piece of moonscape and explore all of its pieces, something that had never happened before. And you see the same thing with 16, which explored, covered about 16 miles, a little bit more than that, and was able to gather samples from a huge area. And then 17, in which the astronauts actually ventured almost five miles from the lunar module and did so while driving a couple of miles across an undulating plain up a steeply sloping avalanche fan, up and over a ridge-like fault line, and then down the other side. So when they were almost five miles from their, their lunar module, they were, they were also a, a, a pretty serious couple of climbs away from it and a long hike, and that was their one way home. Yeah, and there was a, a little bit of a mishap with the uh, Fender there on the Apollo 17 rover. Before they even got started, it, it was a bad moment. Yeah, Gene Cernan, the commander of the mission, accidentally ripped off a fender extension on the uh, the right rear fender of the, the rover. And on the previous mission, on 16, John Young, the commander of that mission, had done the same thing, but he did it late in the mission. Even so, the lesson learned from that earlier mishap was that the wire mesh wheels of the rover grabbed lunar regolith, grabbed the dust that com you know, comprises the first couple of inches, uh, very loose, very fine powdery dust. And it flung it forward over the astronauts and all the electronics on the on the rover, and covered them all. And it threatened it threatened the mission uh, because this covering of dark dust on the electronics absorbed sunlight and threatened to overheat them. And on the astronaut suits, it threatened to foul the aluminum rings with which their gloves and their helmets attached to their suits. So it, it was not just an inconvenience. When Gene Cernan ripped off this rover even before the first drive began on Apollo 17, it was an emergency. And he was able to tape the fender extension back on for their first drive. It was a very short drive, but it fell off on their way back. And they realized they were going to have to come up with a better solution. And with the help of Houston, they fashioned a, uh, a repair from four maps and a lot of duct tape and a couple of clamps. And uh, it didn't look good, but it, it worked. Well, it's good to see the duct tape comes in handy even on the moon. <laughs> <laughs> yes, indeed. Uh, well, so you mentioned maps. How did they get around? I mean, there's no real signposts on the moon. No, and, and, and you know, that's, a, that's one of the things that the rover really brought to the astronauts. On Apollo 14, the last walking mission, Alan Shepard and Ed Mitchell had set out for, on a, on a half-mile hike to a giant crater, the Cone Crater, that was 1,000 feet wide. Now, they knew exactly where it was when they were setting out, and they started hiking that way. And in no time at all, they became disoriented. They wandered around. If you look at look at the the path of their wanderings, it looks like Billy's trips through the neighborhood in the old family circus cartoons. And eventually, mission control told them, "Look, 
you're out of time. Just sample where you are, and we're going to have to hold off on the crater till another day. Unknown to them, they were 65 feet from it, and they didn't know it. So along comes the rover. It has a navigation system built into it. Very simple. It marries a directional gyro, which essentially just keeps track of where the rover's nose is pointed. And it marries that to an odometer. And by figuring out, it, it does a very simple calculation in this system, figuring out how far it travels in any given direction. And by doing that, can keep track of where the rover is in relation to its starting point. There's no magnetic field on the moon, so you can't use a, a compass or any of the traditional ways to get around. You have to you just start out from a, a starting point that you you know you can you can figure out where that is, and then everything else is built on that that starting point. And this navigation system told them where they were, where they were headed. More importantly, it told them where the lunar module was and the quickest way to get back there. And they it performed flawlessly. They were never lost. It's always good to know how to get home. <laughs> yes, indeed. I mean, it's so amazing that the rover was built in the time that it was and was able to do the things that it did. Anyway, do you think it hasn't really been given the attention that it deserves? Probably for the same reason that the missions on which it traveled haven't been. I think that people's attention spans are short. Their memories are pretty fleeting. And as I mentioned, the, you know, the missions have become so commonplace in the public mind at that point that we had come to expect that sort of thing. We had ceased being amazed, which is amazing in and of itself. It's good to dig into this stuff now and to remind people just how remarkable these three missions, these achievements were, because they were, they were really pretty off the chain, even by Apollo standards. Well, in your own research in the book, you wound up being able to talk with a lot of individuals who were involved. Oh, it, I, I felt that way throughout. I had no right to expect when I began the project that so many of the principals would still be living and cogent and eager to talk to me. You know, I lucked out and I also lucked out that I was able to do all of those interviews before COVID intervened. So I got to meet all these people in person. Engineers get a bad rap. Engineers, I think, are often portrayed as overly left brain, wonky, dismal sorts of people. And the fact is that the engineers I've met, the good ones, are incredibly creative. That's what makes them good engineers. And the people I met researching this book brought that to life. I mean, these guys are problem solvers. And, and they were presented with some really out of this world kind of problems in the, in the course of putting together this piece of the missions. And they came up with solutions that worked and worked unfailingly, which is remarkable. Did, did any of them uh, look back and say, man, I think we probably could have done that a little bit, the legacy of what they did? I think they all have a pretty strong sense of legacy. They, you know, in terms of improving on what they did, given the materials they had to work with at the time, this was as lean a distillation of this sort of machine, I think, that you could have hoped for. And I don't think you'll run into many of them that have regrets about not doing something differently. Now, certainly, if you ask them, given today's materials and construction proceed, you know, processes, do you think you could make a lighter rover? They'll all tell you, oh, sure, no, no question. But if you ask them, could you build a better rover? I think most of them are pretty proud with, of what they came up with and pretty resolute in the belief that, call it beginner's luck if you like, but they got it right the first time. This was a machine that had to answer a lot of demands. You know, the, the weight being the big one. It had to weigh 
less than 500 pounds. It's easy to build a rover if you have no limits in terms of weight. It's it's very challenging to build a machine that has to be really rugged, almost 100% reliable, and which weighs less than 500 pounds. It's really remarkable, the, the invention that they came up with. When readers pick up the book, what would you like them to take away regarding the rover, the, the missions to the moon, and where we are going in the future with exploration of space? I guess one of the lessons that came through to me, Charles, as a bit of a revelation, was just how much of a public-private partnership the entire Apollo program was. I did not fully appreciate just how big a role private industry played, not only in building the various pieces of the rockets and the equipment that went aboard them, but in designing them, in, in coming up with the solutions to really complex problems that NASA encountered along the way. We tend to think now of, of the space program as being all, all NASA's doing, and, and that isn't the case. This was really an, an undertaking that involved hundreds of thousands of people, the vast majority of them working for companies like Boeing and General Motors and Grumman and Bendix and Chrysler. I think that's one of the things I'd like people to realize. And, and, and kind of the corollary to that is that no one person can be pointed to as, as responsible for the successes of this, of Apollo in general, or any single mission or the rover. I mean, this was a group effort. And it's inspiring, I think, to go back and go through the original source material and see such competition, such a lack of ego in the willingness of really, really smart people, people at the top of their games to subsume their own self-interest and to, and to work together towards a common goal. It left me with the faith that really anything is possible if we put our minds to it. Because these guys, you know, the, the entire Apollo program, the timetable it kept, the uh, just ridiculous mission it was it was intended to to satisfy it was pretty close to impossible and they did it we were just talking with mr earl swift he is the author of the new book cross the airless wilds the lunar rover and the triumph of the final moon landings mr swift thank you so much for joining us today on the grox science show thank you so much for having me and that's all for this week's edition of the Grok Science Show. Make sure you tune in next week for more from the world of science and technology. If you'd like to contact us here, you can email us at science at groks.net. For Grok Science, I'm Frank Ling. And I'm Charles Lee. Make sure you also see us on the web at www.groks.net. Have a great afternoon and keep on grokking.